Hi and welcome to this episode of Om Philosophers Live och Tanke, a podcast where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Martin Jensson, senior lecturer in theoretical philosophy at Lund University, and by my side today I have Signe Savien, PhD student in practical philosophy. And by my side, I have Hilary Graves. Hilary is a professor of philosophy at Oxford University and the director of the Global Priorities Institute, a research institute at Oxford University. Her current research focuses on issues regarding global prioritization, and her research interests include foundational issues in consequentialism, interpersonal aggregation, population ethics, moral uncertainty, and the interface between ethics and economics, as well as former epistemology. Welcome here, Larry. We're so happy to have you here with us. Thanks so much for the invitation. So the topic of today's episode is the notion of long-termism. So let's start with a question of what long-termism is. Um, sure, long-termism is the idea that in many decision situations we yeah. should be particularly concerned with the far future effects of our actions. Um, and by this we mean on timescales of, say, hundreds of years or even more into the future, rather than the more near-term immediate effects that we see around us and that we normally focus on when we're making our decisions. Uh, so why should we be concerned with so distant effects rather than more immediate effects that we... Um... Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there are two basic thoughts behind the long-termist perspective. So one is about moral philosophy, if you like. Um, it's about whether you think that future people matter, morally speaking, just as much as present people do. And then the second question is empirical. It's about how much power we actually have to affect the lives of future people. So maybe we should take those two things in turn. So on, on the first score, this is basically the question that economists talk of under the heading of discounting. If you imagine for a moment that you could affect the welfare of either a present person by, say, 10 units in whatever units you want to count, count welfare, or alternatively, you could increase the welfare of a future person by 20 units, then there's a, you face the question of which one of those is better. Um, and from an ethical point of view, it seems like insofar as we can affect them, the interests of, of present and future people um, should matter equally. We shouldn't discount the interests of future people just because we don't get to look them in the face. Um, on the empirical side, so that I think is much thornier. That's the question of whether, given that we interact directly with the people around us, the people who are alive today, and our relationships with the further future people are obviously much more in indirect, much more complicated, subject to much more uncertainty, then there's the question of whether we we actually have the power to do meaningful things for the further future. And I think there there are some lots of thorny issues. But there do seem in the current day and age to be at least some examples um, where on reasonable guesses we can do significant things for the further future. And there it seems that, that we should. Right. So what would such an example be? I think the most compelling examples concern um, very large-scale threats from new technology. We're in a, a historically unprecedented era these days in that technologies that have come online in just the last 50 years or so now have the power to, if we're not careful, to threaten the very future of humanity. So besides the, the familiar examples of nuclear weapons, I'm thinking here of threats from extremely powerful artificial intelligence and synthetic biology. Um, so some of these are threats that could, if we're not careful, even make humanity go prematurely extinct. Um, and insofar as that's true, we're at potentially something of a turning point in history. If we manage these threats carefully, humanity could have this extremely long and hopefully glorious, and fu glorious future in front of us. 
um, if things go wrong, then all those future people who would have got to enjoy lives like ours um, will not have that chance. So if the responsibility is ours, then insofar as those future people matter morally just as much as present people do, then we have a very heavy responsibility on our shoulders today. Could you tell us a bit more about the relationship between long-termism and consequentialism? Because those are different labels. How do they relate to each other? Long-termism seems to be a fairly new label that's been out there just in the recent years, but consequentialism has been around for a long time. So how do they relate? Um, I think you can think of them as being two dimensions in a sense that are just about orthogonal to one another. So consequentialism is the idea in moral philosophy that you should guide your actions entirely in terms of what the consequences or the expected consequences of the actions are. Um, so a typical um, battleground, if you like, between the consequentialist and the non-consequentialist will be something like if you've made a promise, say, to meet a friend for lunch, And then you find that you could do more good by doing something else, by breaking your promise. What should you do? And the non-consequentialist will feel at least some strong pull towards keeping the promise because you made a promise and it's a principle of ethics that you should keep your promises. Whereas the, consequen the consequentialist will want to weigh things in terms of consequences and they will just be interested in whether the consequences of keeping the promise are better than the consequences of breaking the promise. So that's the consequentialist, non-consequentialist divide. Um, when you start talking about long-termism then, you have a choice about whether you you ask your long-termist questions, whether you have your long-termist conversation in terms of whether you would do more good by focusing on the far future or the near future, or whether you frame the conversation in terms of something like whether we ought to focus on the near future or the far future, whether we have moral obligations to focus on the far future. So that's the kind of language that, according to the non-consequentialist, will come apart from questions of just what would lead to better outcomes. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, so my impressions from having conversations with people before is that many put an equal sign between them, that consequentialism and long-termism is just the same thing, or at least that consequentialism implies long-termism. If you care about consequences, um, then you will end up with the long-termist idea eventually. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of putting it, actually. So in the middle of that, you said, if you care about consequences, then you'll end with a long-termist perspective. So maybe I can pick up on that comment. Um, it's true that when one is arguing for the plausibility of the long-termist point of view, one normally focuses on the first instance in consequences and considerations of which outcomes will be better or worse. But it's not only the consequentialist who cares about consequences. And I think this point is a subject of quite a lot of confusion, actually, um, among moral philosophers in particular. Um, the, the language sort of suggests that consequentialists are about consequences and non-consequentialists are not about consequences. But of course, that's not really right. Consequentialists are the people who think that consequences are the only thing that matters morally. Um, but any remotely sensible non-consequentialist, I would submit, um, would say their claim is not that consequences don't matter. That would be a crazy thing to say. Their claim is rather that consequences are not the only thing that matters. So then you can easily be a non-consequentialist long-termist because you can say, I care about consequences and other things also, like keeping promises. But because I care about consequences, then if I think that my concern for consequences should point me towards concern with the far future, then I end up at the long-termist point of view. Are there philosophers that are long-termists uh, for non-consequentialist reasons? What we have? That's a good question. I don't know if there are philosophers who are long-termists for distinctively non-consequentialist reasons. 
Um, but while I'm reluctant to attribute labels to other people without having the opportunity to ask them if they like the labels, um, I would guess that someone like my colleague Andreas Mogensen at the Global Priorities Institute um, will be, at the, at the very least, very sympathetic to long-termism, although he's definitely not a consequentialist. But that's because he's one of these non-consequentialists who thinks that consequences are important. So I think it's the the concern for consequences in his overall picture of morality that drives him to be a long-termist, notwithstanding the fact that he thinks that lots of other things are morally important besides consequences. So if I understand you correctly, you could be a long-termist and you could think that consequences matter a lot, but you could also have certain side constraints or think that we have certain other duties or other considerations that we just should weigh into this equation. Um, so if so, how would you like trade these other considerations against the long-term consequences? Is the idea something along the lines of there being just so many, even if you if you are open to the perspective that other things than consequences matter, would you still not tend to end up with a conclusion that long-term consequences would outweigh the other considerations? So you're open to take that into consideration, but when you look at how you're ranking different options, you would still have long-term consequences being decisive in most or almost all cases. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think I'll perhaps not try to be more ambitious here than outlining what I think the contours of the conversation about that will look like. Um, so yeah, I think one on, one argument, the argument on the long-term side is the one you just sketched, um, which is that if you think that because, especially in the historically very unusual situation we find ourselves in now, the amount of good we could do um, for the far future by focusing on what's best for the far future is so enormous. You might think that that's just going to wash wash away any of the non-consequentialist um, considerations that would normally be in the picture. On the on the other side of the coin, I think the, the tension that many people deeply feel about that line of argument is insofar as focusing on the far future draws resources away from relieving suffering today. Um, and we do have that much closer connection to suffering today. You, know, you can actually physically go to a very poor country and see how terrible things are there. And you can see what you could do if you decided to devote the resources there. I think many people feel a, a strong enough moral obligation to do something about that suffering today, that at least if the conversation gets to a, a competition of resources between those immediate concerns and the far future concerns, um, people will at least not want the far future to suck all the resources. Yeah, and that nicely opens up into global prioritization, right? Could you speak a little bit about what global prioritization is? Um, sure. I mean, I think the the answer's in the name in some sense. The, the reason we set up the Global Priorities Institute was um, we noted the predicament of the increasing number of philanthropists, both at large and small scale, so, you know, ordinary people like us and also billionaires, um, who really want their philanthropic activity to do the most possible good, given the fixed budget they have, whether that fixed budget is 10 kroner or 10 billion kroner or anything in between. Um, and if that's the decision you take yourself to face, then you face the question of in what way of philanthropic spending can you do the most good per krona spent? So which philanthropic interventions are the most cost effective? Um, and then there are various candidate answers. So many people um, facing this question have thought maybe the best thing to focus on is global poverty because since people in the poorest countries in the world today are so much less well off than ourselves, 
even giving up a little bit of our material comfort here in the affluent West could make a massive difference to the welfare of people in the in the um, the poorest countries. Other people have thought you do the most good per dollar spent by focusing on animal welfare because that cause is so extremely neglected. There are things you could do extremely cheaply that would massively increase the, the welfare and reduce the amount of suffering in factory farms. Um, and then a, th a third very common thought um, amongst people who've faced these problems is the, the, the long-termist thought and the, the thought that by mitigating existential risks, at least in expectation, taking the uncertainties into account and weighing them appropriately, um, perhaps we do the most good there by trying to tackle those threats. Mm. Thanks. That's a really good and short overview. Uh, so just to summarize and see if I'm with you. So it's the idea that you have some kind of things here and now where you both have a very good um, idea of what the effects will be. So if we speak more in terms of decision theory, you have maybe higher probabilities of those options paying off. Uh, and also you have another sort of moral obligation because those are people existing now, those are animals existing now, and then you have that against the far future where it's much more uncertain, where the probabilities are more sketchy and probably also a lot lower in many cases. And also you have the moral aspect where those aren't people that we can relate to in the same sense that we, yeah, that we, what do you say, uh, have reciprocity with. Okay, so in, until you said reciprocity at the end there, I felt like pushing back on that line of argument a little bit. Um, so there's this question, like, do we have stronger moral obligations to people today than to people in the far future? I think that's very far from clear, actually. The thing that seems reasonably clear is, like, in psychological terms, mm. it's easier to feel the moral motivation towards people um, existing today than people in the further future. Maybe it's also worth noting in that connection, though, that it's psychologically easier to feel um, moral pull towards helping people in your own country and people in your own neighborhood than it is to helping people on the other side of the world. But many philanthropists today feel like they've got past that aspect of their psychology. They still find if they walk past a homeless person in their own city and they don't do anything about it, they feel absolutely terrible. Um, but when it comes to their philanthropic donations, their philanthropic spending, um, they realize that actually they do do a lot more good by focusing on other areas of the world where the need is greater and the opportunities to help are greater, even though they don't have to stare it in the face on a daily basis. Um, so sorry, that's a very long way of saying, I think, psychologically, it's much easier um, to focus on the near future, but also psychologically, it's much easier to focus on your own country as well. I don't think it immediately follows from that, that in terms of moral obligation, the pull towards the near future is stronger. Um, this is going into the territory of to what extent you think ethics should be governed by rationality rather than emotion. And I think there's a strong argument for getting a bit more rationality in there and thinking of, well, who can we actually help more? Mm. So one side of the thing is the moral side, so to speak. So we have the moral intuitions or moral emotions, um, what morality requires of us. And we have also like this decision theoretic aspects with probabilities and payoffs. Could we speak a bit more about that as well? Sure, yeah, maybe I see them as not quite so separate as you do. But um, I mean, that's for the reasons I was, I was saying a minute ago, I don't want to equate moral, moral emotions and moral obligations so closely mm. together. But anyway, going on to the, the probabilities, I do think this is a, an important difference between the kind of things we can do for the near future and the kind of things we can do for the far future. And I think what you said is exactly right. If you're 
if you're careful about your choices of how to spend philanthropic money, if you're focusing on the near future, just the way the world is structured empirically, you do tend to be finding interventions that have, I won't say anything like certainty of success, um, but reasonably high probabilities. It's reasonably predictable what the outcome will be. You can calculate how many lives you save per krona donated by a carefully chosen intervention um, when it's focused on making things better this century. Um, and if your amount of spending is large enough, you can statistically expect that the number of lives you save pretty well, pretty much will be that thing. Um, whereas when you're focusing on the further future, the decision theoretic structure of the thing you're doing is, again, as you said, it's more like there's an absolutely tiny probability that this thing I'm doing will have an absolutely massive benefit. Um, and then the rest of the probability, that is 0.9999, etc., um, more or less you do no good at all. So the argument for doing it is just how important it would be if it did work rather than you think it's at all likely to do any good. And that, I think, for many people also, that that's a psychologically really difficult thing about focusing on the far future, the, the high chance that they end up not being the one who makes the difference. So sometimes when you dive into the long-termist debate, you come across some labels. So one of them is cluelessness and another is fanaticism. And um, what you just mentioned to me sounded a lot more like the fanaticism side of things. Like you have a tiny probability, but a potentially huge outcome. Um, and then it seems to many people very, very unintuitive to go for that option compared to having a more safe option with a moderate payoff. You also have this label of cluelessness in this debate. So could you speak a bit more about this concept? What is cluelessness and how do you deal with this, maybe in relation to fanaticism or long-termism in general? I think I'd actually like to start talking about cluelessness by thinking about short-termist approaches, if oh. that's all right. This was my own original way into thinking about this topic. Um, if you want to focus on helping people today, one of the things you might do is you, you might go to the website of givewell.com, which is a meta charity that focuses on evaluating first order charities and trying to give advice to potential philanthropic donors on which charities are the most cost effective, which charities focused on people alive today would do the most good um, per krona donated. Um, and the kind of charities that GiveWell routinely recommends. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the Against Malaria Foundation. This is a charity that focuses on distributing long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets in malarial regions. And the argument for that intervention being very cost-effective is that many children, especially under the age of five in malarial regions, are dying from malaria because they're sleeping unprotected. And if you can distribute these bed nets, you can save the lives of these children who would otherwise contract malaria. Um, another one is the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, um, which focuses on deworming children who are suffering badly enough from parasitic intestinal worms that they're not able to go to school. And so the argument is, look, we can deworm these children extremely cheaply. It costs less than a dollar to, to deworm a child. And if we can do this, then the children can go to school, they can get their education, and in adulthood, they will have their livelihoods. Okay, so those arguments at first sight look extremely compelling. Um, but since we do think in principle that further future welfare effects matter as much as near future welfare effects, and since we do think that there are going to be downstream further future causal consequences of any intervention we fund today, including um, the Against Malaria Foundation and the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, you might think, well, 
What GiveWell normally does when it evaluates its charities is it quite understandably focuses on the near future effects, the ones that you can actually measure on a reasonable timescale and incorporate into your calculations. Um, whereas if in principle we're concerned with effects down the whole future of human history, then in principle, even for deciding between those supposedly near-termist interventions, what should we should be trying to do perhaps is build some grand model that tries to sketch what we think the possible further future consequences are of all these interventions um, and incorporate those into the calculations. And no sooner have you said that than you realise that's incredibly hard. How can we possibly predict what the very far future consequences of an intervention like distributing malarial nets are going to be? Um, so that's a good question. The, the way we get to talking about cluelessness is by giving one of two possible answers um, to that question. So well, one of two possible reactions, rather, to posing that question. So the first reaction is to say, well, it's so hard to consider further future consequences that let's just not even bother trying. Let's just do our short-term miscalculations and base the decisions on that. Um, and I think that's psychologically a very natural reaction, but it's not clear it's the rational reaction. The alternative to, is to say, okay, yeah, we're going to try and model the further future. We're going to try and guess which of these interventions has the best further future effects. But then things get really hard because you have to predict what are the effects on future population size, for example, of saving lives of children under five today. Even the sign of that effect is not obvious. There are reasons for thinking that by saving lives today, you will make the future population sizes bigger because you've saved the life of some child who will then grow up to have children, perhaps. And there are also reasons for thinking that perhaps by saving lives today, you make the future population smaller because you're sort of speeding the path towards development and the demographic transition. Um, and even if you have worked out whether you make the future population size larger or smaller, then there are questions about whether it's better to make the future population size larger or smaller. And those are really hard questions as well. So then cluelessness comes up. Um, as the, just sort of the observation of the fact that if you're trying to do that kind of long-term analysis and take future into account as well as the present, um, we're fairly clueless how to do that, how to model it, what values to put on all the parameters our model would need and so on. Okay, that's very interesting. So just to kind of see if I uh, got this correctly. So um, could that be taken as kind of like an objection from a psychological perspective against long-termism. So like if we were to consider everything, we think considering everything far into the future is what we ought to do, like from a moral, moral and evaluative perspective. But this is impossible for us. So that speaks against going in a long-termist direction. Therefore, we kind of like need to go um, into a more like restricted version of consequentialism if we think the consequences matter. Could that be taken as some kind of like objection from practicality or something? Uh, I mean, it could be. And I do hear that line of argument. I don't think it's right, actually. I think the arguments point in a different direction. The account I just gave that argued that we're clueless was based on looking at interventions that had been selected for being extremely cost effective in the short term and asking what happens to the evaluation of those interventions when you try to take the further future effects into account as well. And given that's what we were trying to do, maybe it's not that surprising that we wander into territory where we're fairly clueless. Um, but if you were trying to optimise for the further future, the chances are you wouldn't have chosen those interventions as your best bet in the first place. You would have instead been asking yourself which things seem like 
the best ways in expectation, given all the uncertainties and so on, of influencing the further future. Um, and then perhaps you would have been opting for something like existential risk mitigation in the first place. And so the conversation we should be having is how clueless are we about our prospects for increasing the safety of humanity against threats of existential catastrophe. I don't think the argument's anything like as strong that we're totally clueless there, although obviously it's also an incredibly difficult area. It's not going to be something where you can do a, a nice, neat, randomised controlled trial and figure out what the probability is that you manage to save humanity. Mm. So how promising do you think long-termism is as an action-guiding approach at this stage? I'm not sure whether it is the most useful concept for action guidance or not. Um, when I say I'm not sure, I really mean I'm not sure, not I have the view that it's not. Um, what might be a more useful um, action heuristic is to focus on the notion of existential risk. Um, when somebody asks, well, why should I take the further future seriously at all? The easiest answer is usually, well, let's look at the examples where it seems clearest that there are things we could do to benefit the further future here here and now. Um, those are um, our opportunities to mitigate existential risks. So I'm at least very open to and sympathetic towards the suggestion that the most useful action guiding heuristic for us at the moment is let's address existential threats rather than let's focus on the further future in general. Although I do think it's also an interesting and extremely worthwhile question um, to ask ourselves, well, beyond those examples of existential threats, are there also other ways where we can sufficiently reliably influence the course of the far future that we should be thinking about those as well? And what could those potentially be? Well, so here things get much more speculative um, and I'd probably be making up examples, but th things you might want to look at to see if they could work would be things like um, look at the evolution of human values over the course of history. Um, do we think there are any mechanisms for sort of path dependence and lock-in so that something somebody does at one instant of t instance of time could sufficiently predictably influence which path humanity goes down um, in terms of the values that human society embodies for a very long stretch of time thereafter. If you think there are ways you could do that, then you might want to pull on those levers and you could generate um, an awful lot of increase in value. You could benefit future people an awful lot that way. If you think that the causal structure of history is different, maybe there are grand forces of history that are going to lead human values down such and such a path no matter what, then you'd be much more pessimistic about that sort of route being something that was that was worth philanthropic attention, for example. So would you mind revisiting the issue of fanaticism? Could you tell us a bit more about what that is and how it relates to long-termism? Yeah, absolutely. So the the idea comes about because of the, the decision-theoretic structure, if you like, of attempts to beneficially influence the course of the further future, um, and specifically the fact that they tend to be a matter of doing things that have a tiny probability of doing an enormous amount of good. And we mean really, really, really tiny probability of doing a really, really enormous amount of good. Um, and on the other hand, a very high probability of doing perhaps very little good or even no good. Um, so in that situation, you can get involved in a dialogue that goes something like this. The, the person who's sympathetic to focusing on the far future will say something like, well, my decision theory tells me that the right thing to do is to focus on 
saving the largest possible number of expected lives, where we mean that in the technical mathematical sense, that you think of all the possible numbers of lives your action might save, um, and you take a probability-weighted average of those. And if you do that calculation, it typically does come out in favour of reducing threats of existential catastrophe because the number of people who could exist in the future, stretching down the billions of years, if we don't go prematurely extinct, is really absolutely enormous. So that even if there is a very tiny probability of of saving that future, if you like, the size of the future, if you do save it, is even bigger than the probability is small, if you like. Um, so that in terms of expected number of lives saved, you get very large numbers by focusing on reducing existential threats. Um, so then the question is, well, how much should this drive our decisions? And the worry is that if we follow the line of reasoning where it seems to be leading, we're going to end up saying that we should be spending basically all of society's resources or everything beyond what we need to minimally survive on doing absolutely anything we can to reduce these existential threats by even some tiny, tiny, tiny amount. So, you know, no more restaurants, no more movies, no more trips to the beach, none of that fun stuff, except insofar as you need it to sustain your worthy long-termist interventions, because all those other resources beyond the bare essentials should be going to make artificial intelligence safer, um, for example. Um, and intuitively, and from a common sense point of view, it's kind of hard to take that reasoning seriously. Um, and so hence the name fanaticism. It seems like this is a, a fanatical pursuit of an extremely speculative, extremely unlikely very large payoff. So the, the anti-fanaticism line of thought is something like, well, come off it. We should at least save some decent amount, some majority even of our resources for near-termist concerns, even if we could do more expected good in this technical sense by focusing on the further future. Um, and then the question is whether that's coherent. So in terms of the decision theory research, people try to formulate a coherent decision theory which doesn't have crazy implications in other situations um, and which doesn't lead to the recommendation of doing these supposedly fanatical things. Um, and what's interesting about this from a theoretical point of view is that's really hard. If you just ask yourself which decision theory looks the most plausible in the abstract, it is the one that says just focus on maximising expected value or expected utility. So people have tried to develop decision theories that don't lead to fanaticism and they tend to lead to things that look even crazier. But this is an open, active area of research at the moment. So, okay, so fanaticism may seem very counterintuitive, but if you look at the nitty-gritty details, it seems to be more um, an um, implication that we rather have. It seems to be the implication that we rather have compared to the implications of other proposed decision theories. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said, although now you say it back to me, I'm not sure I want to put it quite that way. I don't think there's anyone who's made their peace with fanaticism. I think even people who've seen those theoretical arguments and seen how hard it is to avoid fanaticism, they still feel like, actually, I don't want to live my life in the way that a fanatical decision theory seems to recommend. I can't, I can't actually take this seriously in practice. It's very hard to internalize. If you were to speculate like wildly, could you see any way out of this? Um, <laughs> you don't have to answer this in cutest. I mean, this is such a like mean question. It's just like <laughs> so interesting. So no pressure. We'll we're gonna cut it if yeah. I think uh, this is a classic academic thing to say. I think it's just the right answer in this question. I think we need more research. I think we need a better understanding of what the space of alternatives is here. But it may well be one of those cases. We we see many of these in moral philosophy where 
um, the kind of progress you make when you have all that research done is you get a clearer understanding of what the options are and you continue to feel torn between them and some people prefer one and some people prefer the other and most people feel like they're somewhere in the middle. Um, I, I would expect that's probably where we're going to get to with fanaticism, but we have to see. Mm. And in the cases that you spoke about for different types of existential risk reduction, those being maybe the um, most promising long-termist routes, would those be examples of fanatical verdicts or are those different? Like, are the probabilities in these particular cases higher or should we view the decision situation in like a different framing, for example, as a collective action um, so that we don't just have you who tries to mitigate existential risks, but we have a group of long-termists working together and that makes the chances better. Like, Sure, that's a really helpful question, actually. Um, so yeah, if we're applying ideas about fanaticism to questions of existential risk, I think there are two things it's useful to note. So one is, if we're thinking, well, is this a situation where what's going on is fanatical? If we're asking that question, there are two kinds of probability you might be asking about in the existential risk context. One question is, how large is the threat that humanity faces in the first place? So what's the probability of premature extinction this century? Is it 50% or is it 0.0000001%? So in that context, I think, if those are the probabilities you were asking about, then there wouldn't be a good argument that focusing on existential threats is fanatical because I think on a sober assessment of the predicament we're in, the probabilities that we face doom the century are, you know, maybe they're small if you're at the more optimistic end of the spectrum spectrum of expert opinion, but they're not that small. Um, however, that's probably not the thing that's relevant for the decision theoretic question because what we want to know is what's the probability that we make a difference to how the future goes. That's the thing that we're taking into account when we're evaluating our actions. And then it may or may not be the case that the difference we can make to the probability of doom is small. And this leads on to what you said about the individual versus the collective. And if you like, this is maybe one nice way of seeing why it's tricky to develop a decision theory that avoids fanaticism, because if you're anti if you're anti fanatical if you like in your decision theory then it really makes a difference to you how big the probability is that you can make a difference you might want to say yes to the intervention if the probability is above some threshold perhaps and no to the intervention if the probability is below that threshold but if you have that kind of view then it's really going to make a difference whether you're taking the relevant agent to be the individual or the collective you're going to find yourself saying things like well, it will be objectionably fanatical for me to focus on existential risk. And the same is true of you and each of your friends taken separately. However, all of us together should focus on existential risk because all of us together can make a a difference to the probability of doom that's above that threshold. Um, And on the face of it, that looks almost inconsistent. It can't be that each of us shouldn't do this thing, but all of us should do this thing. Um, so that could be one argument for just the straightforward expected value decision theory. Um, but in any case, to to maybe address the practical visceral concern more directly, I do think, again, on just sober empirical assessments of what the numbers are, the difference that we could make collectively, at least as a global society, if we seriously try to get our act together and tackle these threats that I've been alluding to, um, the probability, the the amount by which we can change the probability of catastrophe is significant enough that 
even the anti-fanatical person would say, yes, this, this is something we should take seriously. We should take on this challenge. I would imagine the same, especially since you said that much of the risk now is due to technologies that we have invented. And it seems that we have a lot of power to steer it in a more positive direction. So yeah, I think that it doesn't immediately follow that because we created the threat, we have the power to, to solve it. But I, I do think that's plausible. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And I guess it depends on what kind of technologies you look at. Um, the AI scenario is probably very different compared to some other technologies that's out there. But I think there's a lot in our power if we created something to create something else that counteracts it. Yeah. Okay, so now to a more like general question. So connected to global priorities or to long-termism more generally, what are like top question that you would like more people to do work on or make progress on and why? I think I'm going to answer that question at a meta level, if I may. I think philosophers sometimes have a tendency to retreat into the ivory tower. Um, we have a tendency to pick questions to work on that are sort of intellectually cute, if you like. They're sort of nice little puzzles that are theoretically absorbing. Um, but I also think that when we as a society are trying to address the kind of challenges that I've been talking about, the kind of real world practical challenges that I've been alluding to, Philosophers have an awful lot to offer to that enterprise. Um, we tend not to realize it so much when we're in the philosophy room, but if you throw yourself into the, into the interdisciplinary fray and you try to take on these sometimes much messier, bigger picture, more practical facing questions, you realize that the, the patterns of thought and the tools, the formal models, the conceptual clarity that is the bread and butter of philosophers, it really does help with making important progress on these real world challenges. So I think my call to arms, if you like, would be like, if there are philosophers who really want to make a difference, they want to leave the ivory tower and do research that is more directly aimed at doing good in the world, um, there's an awful lot you can do. But the first thing to do is to understand the empirical challenges that we're facing and join the project of figuring out where can philosophers help here. Thank you. And also, if someone came to you for advice, like, what should I do with my time and the resources I have? I guess this is also kind of like an unfair question because it depends on what time and what resources they have. Uh, so maybe I could phrase it. Um, maybe it's okay that maybe you could like do the habit. So if someone came to you for advice, what should I do with my time and money? Where would you po point them um, from this global priorities perspective? Okay, I think it makes a lot of difference there whether you're asking about time or money. Um, if you're asking about money, it's relatively straightforward. Um, there are funds you can donate to that are focused on addressing existential threats, for example. More resources there is always helpful. We can scale up the efforts if we have more funding. Um, if it's time, then it's a much more complicated question because it depends on the skill set and lots of other attributes of the person in question. Um, it's very important to do something that you're good at and something that you enjoy enough that you can stick at it and really throw your energy into it. Um, and so we'd need to start with a conversation about what this person is like, what's their educational history, what makes them tick, what kind of work gets them going in the morning versus makes them think, oh, I suppose I ought to go to work. Um, and that's going to vary an awful lot from one person to another. Thank you so much, Hilary. And thank you so much for coming to the podcast and sharing your thoughts. Thanks so much for having me. And also a big thank you to Larm Studion and uh, Peter Ruslund for helping us with the sound.